0: all here. We're all ready. Jesus is Lord, and we're ready to jump into the text together. Open your Bibles, please, to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 5, as we've been marching through the life of David. So here we are giving you the context one more time so you know where we are for those that might not have been tracking with us thus far. A lot's happened in four chapters of 2 Samuel. Um, All of Israel has been revolutionized. Bad things have happened. There's a lot of chaos, a lot of disunity, a lot of disruption, a lot of things that have not gone the right way. It began with Saul and Jonathan being killed on Mount Gilboa while fighting the Philistines, as God had said would happen because of Saul's, um, Saul's disobedience to the Lord. So Abner, after that battle, he decides to take Ishbosheth, bosheth who's Saul's son, and anoint him as king over the 11 tribes of Israel save Judah, because Judah, in obedience, takes David Jesse's son, the shepherd boy, and takes him and makes him king in Hebron over Judah. And since then, there's been an ongoing civil war. David's, David has been fighting against Saul's men, and Saul's men have been fighting against David. Saul meaning Ishbosheth. And, and so there's, during this time, David's kingdom has become stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul has become weaker and weaker. We've seen that Abner, deci- uh, Abner decides he doesn't like this, and he instigates a fight with David, and in the ensuing battle against Joab, Abner kills his little brother, Asahel. After that, Abner next tries to negotiate a treaty, probably behind Ishbosheth's back when he falls out of favor with him. David goes along with this and is like, Yes, let's have an olive branch situation, let's reunite Israel as God intends. But what happens is Joab decides it's a really good time to get revenge on Abner and goes out and kills him even though he was under David's protection. And so, the story goes on. This led Bena and Rechab deciding to do what they thought was best for Israel and best for themselves. They murder ish while he sleeps on his bed. They think David will welcome this news. We're going to be heroes. We're going to be the ones that you know, use, get God's purposes to prevail You know, so they thought they bring David good news, but instead, David judges them on the spot for their insurrection and their murder and has them killed because, as we've seen throughout this story, David's kingdom is going to operate according to God's purposes. However, imperfectly, as we all know, the main point is that David knows that his kingdom is actually God's kingdom, David is simply a steward. It is the Lord who will keep his promises to David, and that's what we're going to see being bore out here in 2 Samuel 5. Now, 2 Samuel 5 is a great text. I'm excited to work through it with you together. What you're going to see is five vignettes, five episodes, or five snapshots of David's kingdom. Now, they're not in chronological order. The writer is going to use these episodes as he sees fit just to prove the point of verse 12, which will be the only verse I read right now. And so 2 Samuel chapter 5, and look there at verse 12. This is the centerpiece of the whole text. It says there, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word, five episodes as we see the Lord establishing David as king. That's my title this morning, the Lord establishes David as king. Here are the five episodes and the things we can learn from them. Number one, we're going to see in verses one through five this truth, that the Lord keeps his promise to David. The Lord keeps his promise to David. Now let's read verses one through five together. It says, when all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David as king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven and six months, seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So what we see here is the Lord keeping his promise to David. So now that Abner and ish are no more, and there's no one ruling over Israel, the elders of Israel gather together to make David king, and they provide... Several reasons why David is the logical choice. So, notice their reasons that they give there. First, they say that David is bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. They argue that they appeal and argue to their relationship with David. We're all brothers. We go back to, um, going all the way back to Jacob, we are all the tribes of Israel. We are the same flesh and blood. This is a family decision. David, you should be king over us because you're our brother. But they give a second reason. Second, they, they, they talk about David's military conquests and his fighting record. That David had been successful and faithfully led Israel out during the times of Saul as a military leader. In fact, the only real military victories that Saul had were due to David. David. Go all the way back to David and Goliath. All of the military success that Saul enjoyed was at the hands of David. And all of Israel knew this. And so, even the children of Israel grew up singing a song together. Just like all of us learned Jesus loves me, all the children of Israel learned a song about their king. You know what it was? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. That song quite literally irked King Saul, but they were singing about David's military exploits. In fact, I would say that this song probably left a lot of Israelite teenagers and a lot of Israelite young adults questioning their parents about why Ishbosheth was the king in the first place. Is it not David that we sing about? Didn't we learn lullabies about him conquering all of the Philistines? Why did you choose Ishbosheth? That didn't seem like a good idea. Parents, just a reminder: when you teach your kids music and teach them songs. You need to make sure you do what the song says, okay? Kids see inconsistencies, amen? The kids, that's a great chance for you to give one to your parents, amen? Oh, now it should have been children, should have been children there, all right. So, they appeal to David's leadership and ability to fight. David's a great warrior. It should be you that leads our armies and fights our battles. But the third reason they give is the most consequential and compelling notice that they appeal to the promise that God had made to David. They say this, "The Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel." The Lord promised this to David, not not the elders of Israel. The Lord promised this to David. The main point here is that they take David and they make a covenant with him before the Lord. Don't miss that. They make a covenant with David before the Lord. So this isn't simply A political move, or a relational fixer, or a political strategy. This is a religious, covenantal move of repentance and obedience. This is no longer Israel stubbornly refusing to do what God had already told them to do. This is a covenantal move of repentance. Now, here's the point. Despite Saul's continual attempts to take David's life, and there were many, Despite David's own follies, he had follies, and his semi-allegiances with the Philistines that were probably not wise. Despite Abner's rebellion with the northern tribes and splitting the kingdom of Israel, despite Joab's cruelty and vengeance, despite politics and power plays like from the likes of Bena and Rechab, God has finally brought about his promise to David as he said years ago, when David was just tending sheep for his father Jesse. God's promises will prevail. Hear me, this is the point in your life and mine. God's promises do not fail. Though they may be resisted. Though they may be ignored. Though they may be forgotten. Maybe this morning you've simply forgotten some of the promises that come to you in Jesus. Maybe they've been seemingly delayed. Delayed. For some reason here or there. They will not be stopped. God's promises will not be stopped. No matter what. They will not be stopped by others. They will not be stopped by sin. They will not be stopped by rebellion. They will not even be stopped by David. Hear me, this is great news for you and for David. God's calling on David's life to be king already had all of this other nonsense factored into it. None of those things took Jesus, took God by surprise. None of them thwarted his promises. None of them delayed it even for a second. This is very much like Israel's rebellion and rejection of Jesus, which only accomplished God's purposes in the end. Instead of receiving him, they murdered him, and yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and to lay on him the judgment we deserved so that we could be forgiven. God's promises to us were. We're not thwarted due to our own sin and rebellion, and neither were God's promises to David. So in verses 1 through 5, you need to know that God keeps his promise to David. David is now king over all of Israel. Second, the Lord keeps his promise to Abraham through David. Now this is an interesting turn in the story. Look at verses 6 through 10. Another vignette that happened in David's um, David's, uh, David's life and in his reign. And it said, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem... "...against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind." who are hated by David's soul. He's using that as mocking them. David does not despise the blind and the lame, and that'll be proven out in his relationship with Mephibosheth later on. But he's basically, they're mocking David, saying, we are so entrenched and so fortified that even our blind and lame can fight you off, David. And David's like, okay, we'll see how that works out for you when we come up the water shaft. Okay, so David knows what he's doing here. And therefore it is said, the blind and the lame will not come into the house And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord God of hosts was with him. So here's the point. Now that David has a unified kingdom, Samuel tells us a story of how Jerusalem becomes the capital of Israel. If you were to ask any Israelite or any Jew even today who was the most important king in Israel's history, they'll say David. If you say, what is the most important city in all of Israel, they will say it is Jerusalem. So this is the story how the most important king came to rule in the most important city, Jerusalem. Now some scholars argue that David chose Jerusalem because he needed a northern capital that would win the favor of all of the other tribes of Israel. Since he was ruling in Hebron, a Judah, a city of Judah, um, David shouldn't want to be seen as playing favorites. He wants to rule over all Israel, not just Judah. And so all of that, him taking Jerusalem, could be practical and pragmatic and further his um, favor with all the people. However, however, there is more at work here in these few verses. And it goes back 800 years to Abraham. If you were to go to Genesis 15, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, God says this to him in verses 18 and 21. He says, On that day the Lord God made a covenant with Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, that's the Philistines, and the Jebusites. God's going to give you the land of the Jebusites. Well, where are the Jebusites? In Mount, on top of Mount Zion living in Jerusalem. Well, why are they there? What about Joshua? Wasn't he supposed to drive everybody out? Yes, but he didn't. Because if you go to Joshua chapter 15, it says this. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Hmm, here's the point. David goes to Jerusalem and captures fortress Zion through the water system to carry out the promise that God had made to Abraham. That promise was made 800 years earlier. 800 years. The the shame of Judah was that they could not carry out God's word that he had given to Abraham and so David here proves that he is a a king who is committed to carrying out God's promises for his people this will no longer be the city of the Jebusites among the clans of Judah this will be now the city of David the most important king has captured the most important city and Samuel gives us the reason in verse 10 look at verse 10 at the Lord's commentary It says, David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Don't miss that. The Lord was with his king to carry out his promises for the purpose of his people. This is precisely the reason why Saul failed as king and was afraid of David. If you were to go to 1 Samuel 18, it says there... That Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Do you see why David's being successful? It says here, so Saul removed David from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And David went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all of his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. This is the reason. Here is what this means for us. That we are so tempted to believe as God keeps his promise to Abraham through David. It's been 800 years. 800 years of waiting. God's promises do not have an expiration date. We tend to think that way, don't we? Though this promise takes 800 years to come to fruition, it was never in doubt that God's word and God's purposes would prevail. God's promise would come to pass because God keeps every promise he has ever made. All of God's promises are true, no matter the resistance or opposition or chronological calendar on the date. I don't suggest you drink milk past the expiration date. It's bad news. But there is no expiration date on God's promises. Every one of them will prevail. Listen, there are those who say, this is is true for us who now, this is the same truth bears out today for us, for those of us who look back on all of God's promises in Jesus. There are those who say Christ's promise of returning is wrong. He's not coming. God has failed. God's promises have expired. That's not any more true than the taunts of the Jebusites here. They say the blind and the lame will ward you off. David, you can't come in here. Well, let me tell you, David had the last word. David had the last word. It is no longer the city of the Jebusites. It is the city of David. And the same is true for Jesus. There are those who say science and secularism and humanism will win the day and prove God false. Hmm. I can tell you that when Jesus breaks open that eastern sky, every person on this world will realize that he has been telling the truth all along. That day is coming. There is no expiration date on God's promises. Third vignette. Vignette. Notice here that in verses 11 and 12, the Lord establishes David among the nations for the sake of his people. For the sake of his people. Look at verses 11 and 12, two incredible verses. It says, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and also carpenters and masons who built David a house. Now, this happened in the last 10 years of David's rule. This is why we know this is not chronologically ordered. Um, this was in the last third of David's 33-year rule in, in Jerusalem, but... The point is verse 12. It says, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. So it's not all in this text war or imperialistic expansion. Several nations will see David as an ally and a friend, and one of those is King Hiram of Tyre. And like I said, this is why we know this is not in chronological order. But the point is, verse twenty-five. I mean verse twelve, where it says, "The Lord establishes David among the nations for the good of His people." Very similar to the promise God made to Abraham that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, and they will be a blessing to you. It is for David here knows who he is and who he was, and the very purpose of his life. David's kingdom exists for the sake of God's people, Israel. That's important. What kind of king is David? David is a shepherd king, a servant ruler. Did you pick up on that promise that the elders of Israel quoted earlier? God's promise to David was that you will shepherd my people Israel, not rule over them as an authoritarian with an iron fist or a dictator. You will rule for the sake of my people Israel. David will shepherd his people And shepherds love and care for their sheep. And I would argue here that this is the purpose of all good governments. They know their place. That they are for the sake of their people. And I want to say here, oh how much joy and peace and contentment and fulfillment each one of us could have if we were to know our purpose and live it out as David. However flawed and however failing, David sought to honor the Lord in all that he did. Now listen, let me make this simple for you. People want to complicate walking with Jesus. Let me tell you, follow him, live in a way that pleases him, and make him known among the nations. It'll all be fine. You want peace, joy, and contentment? Follow Jesus, live in a way that pleases him, and make him known among the nations. That is the purpose for which you have been called. You can do that through any endeavor you please, any career path you choose, any neighborhood in which you live, any school by which you attend. There is no limitation on your ability to honor Christ and to do what He has told us to do. So the Lord blesses David, and He establishes him him among the nations for the sake of His people. And then fourth, and this is one that I think is going to strike close to home. If you have open-toed shoes, cover your toes. It's about to get messy. The Lord blesses David despite his blind spots. What we see right in the middle of this text in verses 13 through 16 are very, is a very, it's a very odd thing, but we'll talk about it. Look at verses 13 through 16. It says, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem, after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David, and these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem: Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, um, Ibhar, uh, uh, Elishua, Naphag, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. So we're here told to a story of David coming to Jerusalem and taking many more wives and concubines. Now there are several issues at work here. First, you have the issue of David taking more wives and increasing his family and political strength through this very act. Now David here is doing simply what is practical, political, and culturally acceptable according to the common practices of all the kings of this time. This is simply what all rulers did to expand their reach, to expand their influence, and to consolidate their power. Their children would rule over areas of the kingdom, intermarry, with those that were seen to be their allies with the children of other kingdoms, thus expanding their reach, expanding their influence, and providing protection for their rule. It's practical, political, pragmatic. Very simple. That's one of the issues. and In one way, this shows that that God is still blessing David because he's increasing his strength and clout. But there's a second issue here. And that is the Old Testament prohibition to, to exactly what David is doing. Did you know that the Old Testament strictly forbids what David is doing here? Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 17. This is a good time. I want to hear pages turning. Deuteronomy 17. Flip over Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Bible. 17th chapter because this chapter matters much in David's life. It matters much. When you're there, say amen. When you're, if you're not there, say hold on. All right, good. We got some honest people. All right, Deuteronomy 17. Beginning in verse 14, look at what Moses instructs Israel to do with their kings. I still hear pages turning. It's a good sign. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 says this, when you come to the land, the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it. This is after Joshua, right? Um, This is on their way. This is when they're still wandering in the wilderness and you dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me. You may indeed. Set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And that was David. One from among your brothers shall be set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only, only, he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall not return this way. Verse 17. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. So maybe David hadn't done this part yet. He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom he and his children Israel. Now David did the rest of that. In fact, most of his psalms are commentaries and his meditations on him writing the first five books of the law. Now, It is on this point of David taking many wives, it is on this very point that David will eventually fail in regards to Bathsheba. Notice that in this list of even sons, Solomon is listed here right now. It is David's insatiable desire for more. This lack of contentment in what God has provided, believing the lie that God has not been gracious enough, or good enough, or kind enough to me in my blessings. It's this idea that I must have more. That is the same lie that Adam and Eve believed in the garden. It has not gone anywhere. You can have this entire world, everything in it, just not this one tree. And in fact, in the story of David and Bathsheba, I was talking about this earlier with one of our uh, church persons, and um, when David sins with Bathsheba, David, God rebukes him and says, David, I've given you everything you've asked for. If you wanted more, I would have given it to you. But instead, you decided to take something that did not belong to you. It's this insatiable desire for more. Now, here is what I want to say. Right here, we come face to face with a blind spot in David's life. And this is a huge reminder for us. Hear me, as much as we talk about learning lessons from David, we have to remember that David is not Jesus. David is not Jesus. He is a sinner. He is broken. He is in need of redemption. He is in need of repentance. He's following the human culture of kings instead of the revealed will of God. Now, we as believers and the church as a whole are tempted in the very same way. Hear me. It's always easier to go with the flow. It's always easier to choose what pragmatically works and what is culturally acceptable than to simply obey God's Word and leave the results in His hands. Do you not see that happening? It's very easy. It's very easy for churches to do that. It's very easy for Christians to do that. It's very easy for pastors to do that. We all have blind spots. Every one of us. We don't get to excuse them. We don't get to make excuses for them. When we recognize them, We have to deal with them honestly. And let me just remind you that when God decides to point out one of the blind spots in your life, whether it's through your own study of scripture, through self-reflection, or through the loving rebuke of a brother or sister, that is God's grace to you. Because it's called a blind spot for one reason. You know what that reason is? You can't see it. If you could see it, you you know what we would call it? A spot. It's a spot. We call it a blind spot because you can't see it. But when God shows it to you, it is His grace to you so that you can repent and deal with it. So, Christians of all people, we should be very careful not to fall prey to hero worship regarding those in political positions. Regarding whether that, whether that be presidents or kings or celebrities or pastors. It is only David's heir... Jesus the Christ, who can say without reservation, I only do the things that please my Father. It is Him that we follow. David isn't the hero, Jesus is. So don't look to David, look to Jesus. And that is exactly what David would say. And finally, i got to go fast, the Lord protects His people through David. Here we go, really fast. Story of David defeating the Philistines. It says, when the Philistines heard, this is, when we, this is a flashback before the King of Tyre thing. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And David said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of the place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away to destroy them. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, part two. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up, go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. We see here that the Lord protects his people. This is what the Lord does. He does it two ways. You need to learn these lessons. First, he does it by guiding and directing his people. David asks, should we go out to fight them? They're in the valley. Should I go down to do that? And God says, yes. So David doesn't presume he inquires of the Lord. He wants God's direction and God answers him. And David says there that when they broke out against the Philistines, that God broke out against them like a flood. He names the place Baal Perazim, which means the Lord breaks through. Contemporary, if we were naming this place, we would call it Smashville. Because that's what happens. God smashes the Philistines, and David names the place what God did. But God did it by giving David direction. But secondly, God also protects his people by his own power. In round two, the Philistines come back to the same place, and David doesn't presume and just say, Well, I'm going to go back down there and do the same thing I did before. David says, shall I go up against them this time? And God says, no, not this time. You're going around behind them. Go around behind them. And when you hear in the trees the sound of my army, you'll know that I am going out to fight for you. So what do they do? They go wait and they hear God's army going out and God does exactly what he says. The same way that God had fought for his people during Joshua's days of conquest. It wasn't about Joshua then and it's not about David's military prowess or might now. It is about the fact that God fights the battles of his people for them. Learn that lesson. Verse 25 is the key and that's where I'll end. Look at how after every one of these episodes there is a commentary about what the Lord has done. It says in verse 25, David did as the Lord commanded him. Now guys, you should underline that, circle it, highlight it, write it on your door. May we all learn this simple and profound lesson, the same principle and profound lesson that Saul had failed when Samuel had to confront him over his lack of obedience. If you remember back in that story, uh, Samuel goes to Saul and he says, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? It is To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. And because you've rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you from being king. Now, Jesus gives us that same very principle. Jesus says to all of His disciples, If you love Me, keep My commandments. If you love me, obey me. Now, let me say this. The issue in our battles with sin and the issue in our battles with obedience isn't simply a matter of behavior, but a matter of belief. It's a battle of our hearts. It's a battle of our affections. Do we love Jesus and is he sufficient for us? Or do we look to other things or to other people for joy and peace and fulfillment? And if that's what you're doing, I just want to ask you, how's that working out for you? Because I can tell you, in my few short years here on earth, I have been let down many times, but never once by Jesus the King. He has satisfied my heart, and he will keep every promise. And may we learn with David here, and insert our names there, Jacob does as the Lord commanded him. So and so does as the Lord commanded him. And we do that because we love Jesus. We love him because he first loved us and he gave himself up for us so that we could be forgiven of our sin, our own rebellion and looking for satisfaction somewhere else. We come to him in repentance and faith, acknowledging our need of him, acknowledging that we have gone astray and we need a savior. And if you've never done that, then may today be the day When you come to Christ and God's promise of salvation and forgiveness is born out in your own heart and soul today. Would you pray with me? Father, bless your word and the preaching of it. Father, we ask that you would do what I cannot do right now. And that is speak to our hearts by your spirit from your word. Father, open up, pull back the veil on our hearts, the veil on our eyes. And may we see Jesus, beautiful, true, lovely, all-sufficient altogether worthy, and may we fall on Him. And Father, every snapshot we see in David's kingdom, may it it point us to the greater and fuller and more perfect kingdom of Jesus. We pray this in His name.